Good morning, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Newcomer Investor Channel, where we talk about stocks, share insights, and debate. I hope you're having a fantastic week. Over here in Toronto, we are finally getting hot weather. I mean, I looked, it's 14 degrees today. How amazing is that, right? Uh, if you live here or anywhere in Canada, you know what a treat it is to finally get some double-digit temperatures uh, after the, the winters we get. But anyway, I'm quite excited about this. So I'm having a good day. Now, before jumping into our topics for today, I do want to remind you that nothing in this podcast is financial advice. In fact, it's all only entertainment. It's all for fun. Uh, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you what I do. Uh, but I have made many big mistakes and I keep making them. So make sure you always do your research as well. For our first topic of the day, I want to talk a little bit about my allocation strategy. I have referred to it a few times in previous episodes, but I don't know how detailed I went in. I know I get uh, quite a few questions about it from, from you guys on Twitter, so I wanted to dedicate a little portion here today just to talk about that and how I conceptualize it and view it in my head at least. Now, firstly, I don't know if it's even the best strategy to have. It's one that I feel is probably kind of backed by common sense. Uh, in a way, but maybe it's not the best thing to do. But the first thing is, for me at least, I like to have diversification by sector. So what I mean by that is that I do consider it important to have stocks that aren't all in one industry. Now, don't get me wrong. I think if you manage to develop a, a very intimate knowledge of one industry, it does make sense to be pretty concentrated in it. For example, if you are a banker and you know everything about the Canadian banks, you know, if you have 100% portfolio in Canadian banks, again, that's not what I would do, but I understand the rationale. Like, you know the banks very well, you're extremely confident that they'll never fail, then, you know, that makes sense. For me, I like to have exposure to a bit of everything. And the reason is, you know, I'm confident that the banks will be fine, but we can be affected by things, uh, you know, negative market sentiments, the same way we had with this whole banking crisis in the US, that's affected our bank stocks over here in Canada. They all fell even though they weren't really related, right? And now this is something that is backed by data. I do know that oftentimes you'll have a sector that leads the way for a quarter or for a year, and then it'll be another sector another year, and then another sector another year. So if you have exposure to various types of sectors, then this can act as a bit of a stabilizer for your portfolio. So if let's say we have a problem uh, with the financial sector and all the banks kind of crash, well, at least perhaps my portfolio will be carried by energy or by tech and vice versa. So anyway, currently this will be as of the start of April, so the numbers may be a little bit off, but in terms of sectors, for my portfolio, financials lead the way, they're at 26%, which is way too much. I don't think that is a reasonable number. Uh, it is one that I do intend to decrease over time. I have decreased it quite a bit already. I mean, we used to be over 30%, so it's nice to see it at 26 now. Uh, my second, it's actually not a sector. It's one company, and it's Brookfield Companies as a group. I put them all together because at the end of the day, they're all uh, you know, backed by the larger corporation. So uh, for my portfolio, that consists of Brookfield Corporation, Brookfield Renewables, and Brookfield Asset Management. So that is also a very large percentage, uh, and that reflects, again, my confidence in that company and in their, their whole ecosystem in general. I do recognize, though, that it is an extremely high number. So that is a pretty relatively high risk uh, bet on one company here. I am aware of that. Next, we have ETFs at 12.6%. That is something that I absolutely plan to increase massively over time. I would like my ETFs to be 30% of my portfolio. So that is a work in progress and we'll get there over time. It's not going to happen overnight. 
After that, we have REITs at 11%. That's a pretty good one. Um, I'd like to see my REITs allocation be a little larger, maybe 15 to 20%-ish. Uh, it's good for income, you know. I love real estate. It's definitely not going to go anywhere anytime soon. Then we have industrials at 7.7%. Uh, that's also a really good sector that I'd like to increase. Then we have small cap at 4.6%. That is a number that I'm comfortable with. I think up to 5% for small cap, and you could call them gamble stocks. I'm happy with that. Then we've got tech at 4.4, and that is a number that I absolutely need to increase. I would like to see my tech exposure be, you know, 10, 20% at some point. Uh, I do recognize also that most of my ETF allocation is the S&P 500. Tech is the largest part of the S&P, so, so that's good. Uh, then we've got utilities and renewables at 3.7%, which is really small. I'd like to increase that too. Telecom at 3.3% is also too small. Oil and gas at 3.1%, also too small. And restaurants at 1.7%. Uh, that, I can increase it slightly. So, as you can tell, I do have some uh, sector diversification, but... You know, more than 50% is in financials, Brookfield companies, and ETFs. So I do plan to try to add as much as I can to some of the other ones as well. And again, this is all over time. It's not something that I have to do right now, but it is something that's at the back of my head and that I'm mindful about. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about um, with regards to my allocation strategy is core versus peripheral holdings. This is something I referred to also in a previous episode, but I do want to stress how intentional I am about this. The core holdings are companies that I have studied for some time. I love them, and I believe they will provide me the most value if I hold onto them for extended periods of time as they continue to grow. So these are my buy and never sell stocks, and I aim to have at least one per industry. The peripheral holdings, on the other hand, are opportunistic buys. Now, I do apply similar rules. Of course, these are companies that I should like and believe in. However, these are not companies that I necessarily view as essential in my portfolio. I don't need to have them. I like having them. The primary benefit of having those peripheral holdings usually is a good income, so those are dividend stocks, uh, or I expect a shorter-term capital gain. So to give you a few examples of core versus peripheral holdings, uh, right now, my, my top core holdings, obviously Brookfield Corporation. I don't need to talk too much about it. I, I have already a lot, but that one, to me, is going to be a long-term compounder. It already has uh, compounded a lot over 20 years, but I, I think it will continue to do so uh, for the next couple of decades. Uh, then we have the S&P 500 ETF. That is also one that I said, you know, I plan to hold until retirement. Then we've got Bank of Nova Scotia and TD Bank. Those are my two core uh, Canadian large banks. I think there is much value to be unlocked uh, by having both of those for the next uh, couple decades as well. Then for banking, we also have Equitable Bank, so EQB Inc. That is a smaller, faster-growing digital bank in Canada. I actually have very high expectations of this one. I mean, their record has been uh, excellent over time, and I think they will beat uh, the larger banks. Um, I actually view this one similarly to the way I view Kibikor versus the big uh, dinosaur telecom companies. Um, then, well, now we're talking about telecom. Kibikor is a core holding for me. I mean, what they did is just nothing short of incredible. Again, no one knows this, my friends. In 2010, uh, Videotron, they entered the mobile uh, wireless market with their own spectrum, and that's when they officially, as themselves, they started competing with the, the major uh, national players uh, in Quebec, and in 13 years, they gained 24% market share in Quebec. Now that they have Freedom Mobile, imagine what they're going to do with the rest of Canada. So, super core holding for me, I'm very happy with that one. Uh, and I, as opposed to it, Bell Canada, I bought as an opportunistic buy. I like Bell, I, I do think I'll probably hold on to it, but 
I don't consider Bell a core holding for me. It's just one that I'm happy to have for now, and perhaps I'll keep it for a long time, but if I had to get rid of it, I would easily. But I wouldn't get rid of Kibikoff for now. Now looking at the tech space, Microsoft and Apple are my core holdings. Those are my buy and never sell. Honestly, I have tiny positions, but I'm not planning on getting rid of them. Versus Google and Facebook. To be honest, I like both of those and I really don't expect to get rid of them, but I don't put them on the same pedestal as I do Microsoft and Apple. Now the tech company called OpenText, that is a peripheral holding in my portfolio. I bought it because it, it dropped so hard in value. I don't even know why the price dropped so hard last year, but I thought it was kind of ridiculous. It was trading at a very attractive valuation. So I, I picked up a bunch of it and it, it you know it pays a growing dividend and I'm sitting on a nice capital gain. I have sold off uh, part of my position already and I'll likely sell the rest at some point. I don't know when, but um, yeah, so, th so that, that one I, I don't view as an essential piece of my portfolio. It's just one that I really like uh, for now. I, I got it at a good time, but I could get rid of it. So needless to say, when it comes to uh, the, the funding from these peripheral holdings, this is when I recycle a lot. So I don't consider myself a trader, but I do somewhat trade if you consider, you know, buying and selling a stock maybe three or four months later. If you call that trading, then I am a trader for my peripheral holdings because that's, I would say, that's probably the average length that I hold on to some of these. Maybe six months, you know, uh, I, I buy them. I expect some kind of turnaround. Usually I buy when I see some kind of market overreaction. Perhaps it's a, a poor earnings result where the stock just drops so hard and it's probably unwarranted. That is when I would buy some of these stocks. It's usually a company that I've looked at before that I am quite familiar with and that I think I could do well with uh, by holding and if I have to hold for a long time I'm also okay with that that's the important part of the recipe here is like if you told me you know open text I have to keep it for five years that's no problem like I I'm happy with their plan and with what they do I, I didn't expect to hold it for five years when I bought it but if I had to that's fine and that is how I treat uh, all those stocks. So the core holdings, I just keep buying more of. I've never sold the Brookfield share. I've only added. I've never sold the Scotiabank share. I've only added. I've never sold Canadian National Railway. I've only added. But when it comes to these peripherals, open text, bell, whatever, I will buy and sell when it makes sense for me to do so. And then I reinvest those cash flows. And hopefully when I do sell, I sell with a capital gain. And then I can get increase my uh, annual dividend income when I buy more of these companies that usually yield dividends to. That is more or less the recipe for my portfolio. And of course, the majority of my portfolio is core positions, not peripherals. All right, now getting to the juicy news of the day. Brookfield, of course, has to be Brookfield. Brookfield Infrastructure buys Triton, or Triton, I think it's Triton, Triton International for $4.7 billion. Billion with a B. Another day, another deal for the Brookfield people. What can I say? Uh, I had to take a look at Triton because I wasn't that familiar with this company, and wow, totally makes sense why they would buy it. A very, very attractive company. Let's look at what this company is. So this company is the largest intermodal container leasing company in the world. Now, what is intermodal container? Uh, those are basically shipping containers. So, you know, when you look at a big ship that transports stuff across the various oceans, uh, of our planet. Triton is the largest provider of those big shipping containers that are found on these ships. Now, when it comes to numbers, those numbers are fantastic. Uh, their market share is, uh, I saw different numbers. I saw 26, I saw 28. They've hit a 17% average return on equity since 2006. Uh, the total shareholder return has been 14.7% since 2005. So 
pretty amazing stuff. Now, what did the Brookfield guy say? Uh, the CEO of Brookfield Infrastructure, Sam Pollock, he says, Triton is an attractive business with highly contracted and stable cash flows, strong margins, and a track record of value creation. This transaction provides Brookfield Infrastructure with a high going in cash yield, strong downside protection, and a platform for growth in the transportation and logistics sector. And now, not to say that I've, you know, extensively studied this company because I, I haven't, I'm, I wasn't familiar with Triton, but from a very superficial analysis, you know, looking at what they do uh, and the nature of the cash flows, it seems like an acquisition that totally makes sense and is going to be a great fit for the Brookfield ecosystem in general. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with Brookfield, you know, those stable cash flows are exactly what they're always looking for. And when it comes to infrastructure, you know, they're very clear that um, they are, they have great secular trends uh, moving forward. I mean, urbanization is great. The supply chain disruptions right now mean that there is a premium on reliable suppliers and, and, and logistics operators. So that's great. And, uh, you know, all those things should benefit Brookfield moving forward. Brookfield has a really good track record of acquiring great companies and, you know, bringing it into its uh, little empire and uh, operating them and uh, recycling as they go. So I'm very satisfied with this. Uh, again, for Brookfield, it's business as usual, but I still take the time to celebrate. I don't personally own Brookfield infrastructure right now, but of course I own it indirectly via the corporation. So anything Brookfield touches, uh, I have some exposure to. And for our last topic of the day, a company that I've never spoken about on this channel, Procter & Gamble. If you're not familiar with this company, you probably are familiar at least with their products. Uh, it operates in the consumer goods industry. It's actually my favorite pick in that industry. And um, they basically operate a whole bunch of brands. Uh, some of their well-known ones are, include Gillette uh, or Tide pods, which you probably use to wash your clothes. This company has existed since 1890. It's paid dividends for 133 years uh, without any interruption, and it's increased the dividend every single year for 67 years. So it is a very, very resilient uh, and strong company, regardless of the economic environment. Now, we got some news on Procter & Gamble today. They have just announced a 3% dividend increase. Now, those news, I think, are probably a little bit disappointing to longtime owners, just because when you have such a high-quality company, you tend to have also um, high expectations of it because, I mean, of course, if you're such a, an amazing dividend king, you'd probably expect um, inflation-beating raises at least, right? So 3% is kind of on the lowish side. But when you consider all the other factors um, involved, and if you look at the five-year track record, uh, the stock is up 92%, and that doesn't include uh, dividend raises and reinvested dividends. 92% capital appreciation is not too bad. With that said, is this a good stock to buy right now? I don't know. I certainly am not buying it right now, though it has been on my radar again for, for a while. But, you know, it trades at a valuation. The P.E. ratio is around 26, which is quite a bit. And the dividend yield is, uh, you know, 2.4, 2.5%. That's a little low and the dividend increase isn't even that high. So if you factor in, let's say you get maybe 3 to 5% dividend increases for the next 3 to 5 years, you're still not going to have a very high yield in the end. So... If you buy a company like this, you're probably banking more on a capital appreciation type of uh, gain rather than a dividend gain. Now, of course, nothing wrong with capital appreciation. In fact, that is one of my favorite methods of earning a return on stocks. But with that said, I am not buying the stock right now. I like it. Um, I res really respect this business and I'll keep watching it. But I have not bought it and I am not buying. 
Anyway, this more or less concludes this episode. I have been mentioning a second guest episode, and I'm happy to say we finally have the date booked. So this is happening this week. I'm hoping we'll have the episode out for you guys uh, either at the end of the week or maybe early next week. We'll see. But in the meantime, check out my first guest episode featuring the legendary Dividend Dave. It'll be a similar type of format. And uh, yeah, I really hope you enjoy it. Thank you as always for listening to the Newcomer Investor channel, and I look forward to connecting again with you soon.